so this series is called Give Your Head Peace, and uh, we're in the sort of week five of it now. And uh, so a quick recap of, over the weeks. Uh, we started off looking at generosity and how important generosity is for our peace of mind, for our mental health, for our spiritual well-being. And uh, we talked about generosity, and we, we mentioned Zacchaeus, that famous... Uh, apparently vertically challenged tax collector who, who climbed a tree and uh, who, who wanted to see Jesus and whose life was transformed by dining with Jesus. And he went from someone who was a clutcher, someone who, who had grasped on tightly to possessions and things to the detriment of his own spiritual and mental and social well-being that he discovered in dining with Jesus the, the wonder of God's grace, and he opened his hands. He discovered the open-handedness of God and the open-heartedness of God, and he opened his hands because God had transformed his heart. His heart became increasingly open, and so he said, you know, here today I'll give um, half of my possessions to the poor. If I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay them back four times over. And we saw that the importance of, of generosity in terms of our own mental health and our own spiritual well-being. And then we looked at the nature of solitude. What is this thing, solitude and silence? And what, what's it all about? And we realized that the life of Jesus demonstrates to us the, the importance of solitude and silence that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, spent large swathes of his time seemingly doing absolutely nothing. That the one person who fulfilled completely what he had been put on earth to do, the one person who ever, who actually got right everything that God had put him on earth to fulfill, spent not only hours, not only days, but at times entire weeks doing seemingly absolutely nothing. And Jesus, the one human being, at the end of his life, he was able to say, it is finished. I have done everything that I came to do. There is nothing more left on the bucket list there is nothing more left on the to-do list. I have done everything God has called me to do. And imagine being able to do that by spending at times hours, days, and weeks in complete solitude and complete silence. And then we... Uh, I remember what happened in week three, a couple of weeks ago. So we had, we had Jacob, remember Jacob, the deceiver? And Jacob, again, was a clutcher. So much of this series, it wasn't planned this way, but just realizing how much is to do with our hands and our heart. And Jacob, too, he was a clutcher. More than that, he was a wrestler. He was a manipulator. He was a controller. Jacob's life was marked by the fact he tried to control everything and everyone around him. And he was willing to lie and cheat and deceive and do anything necessary to get his own way. And there were two moments that were moments of solitude that changed Jacob's life from being the deceiver 
That's what his name means, Jacob, to being Israel. God renamed him Israel, which means he struggles with God. And you remember Jacob wrestled with God alone just beyond the river Jabbok. He won the wrestle, and as he won, he sat down in the dust, and he began to weep. And he realized that the more and more that he won his way, the more and more he was actually losing. And he opened his hands to God. And last week, Stephen was helping us to see that another thing that we hold on to is not just the to-do list or uh, trying to control people or control things around us. Another thing we sometimes grasp hold of is anger and frustration at the pain that other people have caused us. And so one of the things that we find us hardest of all to let go of is that sense of revenge, that sense of harboring resentment. That one of the hardest commands of Jesus to fulfill is love your enemy. And yet, the thing that causes us the most damage is holding on to the pain that other people have caused us. And the only way out of that is to come into the presence of the Lord and to hand it all over to him, to trust in him and his way, that he is the God of justice, that he will sort it all out, that justice will be done in the end, and actually just concentrate on delighting in the Lord. And discovering like Zacchaeus and discovering like Jacob that as we open our hands and we let go of the pain, we open ourselves up to the Spirit of Jesus Christ and we receive the peace of God that passes all understanding. And there is a depth of that that can only be discovered in solitude and silence. That we never, we will never discover that to its fullness unless we exercise the spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. It's one of the ways that God invites us and says, be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted in the earth. I'll be exalted among the nations. Don't you fret. Everything will be put the right way up. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is growing. God will show all in all that Jesus Christ is the one to be worshiped. Don't fret. Everything will be all right. And the reading we had today from Isaiah chapter 30. The context of it is that the people of Judah were fretting. They, they weren't living up, as it were, to that wonderful World War II motto that have emblazoned so many mugs and posters of the last couple of years, be calm and carry on. They were panicking because the local emerging superpower, Assyria, was starting to look threatening and flex its muscles. And so the people of Judah, a tiny little nation, were starting to think, what are we going to do? What if the Assyrians overrun us? What if they take control of us? What are we going to do? It's a bit like in modern, all the, all the nations of the world today thinking, China is getting bigger and bigger. China is becoming more and more influential. It's the new superpower. We need to make new political alliances. We need to protect ourselves. That's the equivalent of what Assyria was at the time of our reading in Isaiah chapter 30. And perhaps Egypt at that time was a bit like America today, the one that had been the superpower for so many decades. And what did Judah do? 
They decide to go to the equivalent of the United States. They decide to go to Egypt, the place that had been the superpower for generations, for hundreds of years. And they seek to make a political alliance with Egypt. And they bring their treasures, they bring their gold and their silver down to Egypt. And they're basically, it's a protection, the equivalent of a large scheme protection racket. It's basically saying, we're going to give you gold, we're going to give you tribute, we're going to give you silver. And if the going gets tough and the Assyrians turn up on our doorstep, we expect you to protect us. And Isaiah the prophet says, you're wasting your time. Isaiah says, your plans are not guided by God. Your plans are emerging because of panic and because of fear. You're reacting because you're afraid. And you're overreacting, Isaiah says. The Lord says to you, this is what the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel says, the Holy One of Israel says to you. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. They wanted to keep panicking. They wanted to try and find their own solutions. And so Isaiah says, well, what will happen is that even if one hostile person turns up, a thousand of you will flee. In other words, you will fulfill. It will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you live in fear, you'll become increasingly afraid. If five hostile people turn up, the whole nation will run, and the whole place will be empty because we're just feeding the fear. It's like a big, uh, a big wall that will become increasingly bulging, and one day, boom, it'll fail, and the whole wall will come crashing down. And Isaiah is saying, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Your political alliance with Egypt, your fretting, your fear, your, your watching out and being ready to flee if Assyria turn up on your doorstep, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll always be looking over your shoulder. You'll always be afraid. And if some, even a small bit of hostility comes, you'll take to your heel and you'll run for the hills. And Isaiah said, in the equivalent of be calm, don't panic. Be calm and carry on. Trust in the Lord and wait on the Lord because good things will come to those who wait. Good things will come to those who wait on the Lord. And Isaiah gives them this word of comfort. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. There's some words in Scripture in the Old Testament that are, are timeless or are universal. They aren't just for the people who are listening to them. They're, they're for us in our context. And I think these words... Uh, the Lord saying to the people of Judah in silence and in rest and in trust and in quietness is your salvation and strength. I think there, there are words for every single human being. Because I imagine like me, sometimes you have issues in your life and you allow them to become bigger than they actually are. You allow them to take on a magnitude, a, a, a a place of, of worry and focus in your mind that, that they, they need not even concern you. I think all of us are wont to, to sometimes to worry and sometimes perhaps even to panic. 
I think it was Winston Churchill who said that 90% of the things that he worried about in his life never actually happened. There was a, a psychological experiment that was reported in the Science Journal in July 2014, five years ago, that was conducted by the University of Virginia. And it was a very interesting experiment. The first part of the experiment was they, they brought lots of people into a room and they, they'd have you sit down and they would administer mild electric shocks periodically. And they asked you the question, if you could pay money not to have electric shocks, would you pay money? And the vast majority of people said, I would pay money not to get electric shocks. The second part of the experiment was the important one. They brought in people... Uh, individually into a room, and the room was very plain. There was really nothing to stimulate the curiosity, and people would just come in one by one, and they sat in this room for a period of time, somewhere between six minutes and 15 minutes, and they just said, an opportunity to, to be quiet, to be alone with your thoughts. And then they interviewed the people afterwards and says, how was it for you to sit in that room for a few minutes? How did you find that experience? Half of the people interviewed said that they found it a, an experience in which they found it very difficult to concentrate. More than half said that. Half of the people said they found it a very uncomfortable and unpleasant experience. And there was the opportunity in that room, if you wanted to, to administer to yourself mild electric shocks to help break the monotony. And 50% of the people, male and female, to break what was for them the seeming monotony, administered periodically the electric shocks that previously they'd said they would pay good money not to have. Why do we as human beings find it so difficult to sit in stillness and silence. That God, the Lord of Scripture, says to us, be still and know that I am God. Just quiet yourself. Just be still and discover in the silence that I am God. Why do we, even as Christians, find that so difficult? Why do we find it so difficult to emulate the life of Jesus who spent large quantities of time walking in the hills by himself, getting up early and going somewhere quiet to be, to be still and sit and be still with God? Even taking 40 days before, after he was baptized and entering into that place of public ministry, he went and quite often we concentrate on the fact that he went into the wilderness or we concentrate on the fact that he emerged in the power of the Holy Spirit or we concentrate on the fact that he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. He, he, he fasted. He fasted for 40 days. And yet the thing that I think most of us would find the most difficult is the fact that for 40 days he was alone. He was silent. He was in solitude. It was Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, who said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. 
I think today we may lay the blame at television or iPads or smartphones, and certainly there is something to be said that there can be damage caused by spending too much time on those devices or too much time in front of a screen. But the reality is that it, in a way, is really more of a symptom rather than a cause. Why have we created things that can so much distract ourselves? Why do we spend hundreds and thousands of pounds on things that, yes, can be used for good, but also can become some, something that we can turn to at any moment, at any time of the day, and distract ourselves? And the answer, as the Bible says, and as Blaise Pascal says, is because one of the things that we find most difficult and one of the things that leads to most of the pain in the world is our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I don't know over these last few weeks if you have sought to try and exercise the spiritual discipline of silence or solitude. If you have, then you may discover some of the things that most people discover and certainly some of the things that I have discovered. I just want to encourage you that in that to really persevere in it because there is such joy and peace to be found in exercising uh, a desire to seek the Lord's face in prayer in the midst of what is classically described as contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer comes from the Latin word uh, con, which means with, templa, which means the place where God dwells. And so contemplative prayer is being in the place where God dwells. And, and so today, on the Sunday after Ascension Day, Ascension Day we remember particularly every year, which is Thursday just past, we remember that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God and that he will come again in glory. And the reason why he is there is that he may become all in all and fill all creation with the goodness of God. He has poured his Holy Spirit into the hearts and lives of his believers. And so where in contemplative prayer do we seek to meet the Lord? We seek to meet the Lord in the place where he dwells. And where's the place where he dwells on earth? He dwells in the lives of his believers, his followers. So contemplative prayer is meeting with the Lord in the place where he is enthroned in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ. It's about being in the place where God dwells. So if you've, if you've sought to do that, uh, all of us are different, all of us unique, but let me share some of the things that have happened to me in seeking the face of the Lord in the midst of silence and solitude. One of the first things sometimes happens to me is I fall asleep. You may have discovered this, where you suddenly wake up, or what can happen to me is when my family members come in and they realize I'm not in a deep place of prayer, I'm actually sleeping. And I just want to encourage you, do not be discouraged. Because actually, I think many of us drive ourselves so hard that one of the first things that happens when we sit down quietly to be alone with the Lord is we nod off. But I want to encourage you, persevere through that. And don't be discouraged if periodically that's exactly what happens. Sometimes we're just tired, and sleep is a good thing. What can sometimes happen if we seek to persevere and pursue the Lord through that is that 
uh, we've mentioned it in previous weeks, one thing that happens is the to-do list starts to emerge. And we think, I could be using this time to do so many good and constructive things. I remember I have to do that. I remember I have to do that. So what a good thing to do is have a notepad and paper beside you. And as the things come up, then just jot them down. Yeah, I'll just I'll remind myself to do that sometime. But the reality is, the more time we spend in solitude and silence, the shorter the list becomes. Not by us doing anything, but because we realize that half the list is a lot of rubbish. And it doesn't need to be done. And actually, it's the quickest way. How did Jesus fulfill everything God had called him to do? Did he do more? No, he did less. He just did everything the Father called him to do. And so he just stroked off the things, the, the ideas that came to mind. Good idea, good idea. Is it what my Father wants? No. Is it what my Father wants? No. Lots of good ideas. But he just did what he saw the Father doing. He only did what the Father called him to do. Next thing that might come up is uh, if you're like me, then you have worries, irritations, and concerns emerge. And Stephen spoke uh, wonderfully about this last week, about the reality of quite often what can happen in the midst of the solitude and silence. And one of the primary reasons why we avoid it is because the faces and names of the people who have caused us pain come to mind in the solitude and silence. And that's one of the primary reasons why we avoid it. And so we put into the Lord's hands the people and the faces and the circumstances that have caused us pain. Sometimes from years ago, sometimes from hours ago, sometimes from minutes ago, and we just hand them over to the Lord. And we say, Lord, help me to have the perspective that you have for that person. Lord, I find it really difficult, but I pray your blessing on that person. Lord, I don't feel I love that person, but help me to love that person. And we just hand them over to the Lord. And if we continue to move through that. And again, these things are not like one-off things. They're the things that we return to again and again. And then there's things like this just distractions. What's in the fridge? I wonder what's in the fridge. I wonder what's on TV. What am I missing? The whole FOMO thing, fear of missing out. What am I missing out on by sitting quietly and still in the presence of God? What am I missing out on by being quiet and seeking God's presence? In all of these things, don't be hard on yourself and don't think, oh, I'm failing as a Christian. Why can't I just meet with the Lord and focus on the Lord? The best thing to do gently, as, as Jan Johnson, one writer, says, is just gently show the distractions to the door. Just show them to the door. You don't have to confront them or argue with them or beat yourself about it. You just show them to the door. And when we do that, then the next thing, that, that how we encounter God further at that point is that we start to realize as we sit with open hands in the presence of God, we start to encounter in a fresh way the Lord's provision. You know, quite, quite often, quite often whenever I, I start in a place of, of solitude or seek in a place of solitude and silence, sometimes I walk, sometimes I sit, and, and quite often I discover when I sit, uh, I, find myself, I find myself sitting with my legs crossed and my arms crossed. 
And one of the things the Lord says to me is, Nigel, uncross your arms and uncross your legs. Because your whole body language is full of tension. And I want you to open yourself up to the Lord. It's no coincidence that for Jacob and Zacchaeus and even for Jesus himself, the profoundest places of transformation and effectiveness are the places where our palms are open, where our arms are open, and where we're open to the Spirit of God. And in that place, we will discover the provision of God in a, in a way that we've never sensed it before. And the wonderful words of Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm not afraid in the midst of all the trials and concerns and practicalities and everything else. I'm not afraid in all the challenges of life just to sit with my, with my whole body open and my hands open and to be open to God. Why? Because even in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me. So he doesn't take away, he doesn't take away the irritants. He doesn't take away the challenges sometimes. Sometimes he does. He doesn't necessarily solve all the issues the way we want them solved. Sometimes he does. But what he will always do is to make everything right. To make it right in here, to make it right out there. That's what the Lord is doing. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And there's a word before that. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And it's a wonderful place to discover the provision of God in a fresh way. But it's a place of blessing beyond that. And quite often we stop in our pursuit of God in the place where we receive from God everything that we need. But there's a place beyond that where our desire is not to receive all the generosity of God, but simply to be with God. And that's what contemplative prayer is all about. to go beyond the place of receiving and to step into the place of just being. That we pursue the Father not for what He can give us. He wants to give us all good things. But we determinedly pursue God because we just long to be with Him. And there is nothing better than being in the presence of the Father. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.